sometimes you have to tell yourself that maybe you would it would be exciting to try something different, something new. And it's not the end of the world to go from being the smartest person to starting all over again, because it's kind of exhilarating. Hi, friends. This is your host, Dr. Solomon. Have you ever wondered how we can measure curiosity? Today, I'm joined by a very special guest, a professional colleague of mine, Dr. Diane Hamilton, who will help us answer this tough question. Her career uniquely combines academic and business endeavors. From the business side, she is an emerging top 50 management global thinkers. She is nationally syndicated radio host, a keynote speaker, an author, a founder, and a CEO of a consulting and media business. At the same time, Diane earned her PhD in business management, and she climbed the academic ladder to become Dean of Business Management and Economics. Diane Hamilton, welcome on Thrive. Oh, well, thank you. I'm excited to be here. This is going to be a fun conversation. I've watched some of your other episodes and uh, saw some of my guests from my show that you've interviewed, so this will be fun. Thank you. Thank you for joining me today. You wrote a wonderful book, which was released in 2019 about Curiosity Code Index CCI. And I'm curious, what led you to study curiosity? You know, it's such an interesting field because curiosity is such a... um, a word you hear and you use a lot. And mm-hmm. it's something that a lot of people ask me what I was intending by just the word curiosity, what led to my interest. There's a couple of different things in that realm. First of all, because of my radio show, I interviewed just super curious, interesting people all day mm-hmm. long. And I started to notice how much they were successful because they were asking questions. They were asking why and why not kind of questions. And, and I was at the same time teaching at different universities, having all these um, students that maybe didn't ask as many questions, they kind of wanted me to give them the fish instead of teach them the fish. And I wanted to develop that sense of desire to explore. And so for me, it was about getting out of status quo thinking. It was about uh, exploration and asking and not having anything hold you back. So I started to write the book. And what was interesting to me was as I was writing it, I thought, oh, well, I got to fix this. I can't just write about it. If somebody has a problem with it, you got to measure it. And, you know, I wrote my doctoral dissertation on emotional intelligence and its impact on performance. And and I got used to using measurement tools in in that um, arena. And I thought, well, this will be interesting. Let me look at the assessments out there. And there were only assessments uh, out there were measuring if you had higher or low levels of curiosity. And I thought, well, if it's low, then what do you do? There wasn't uh, anything that told you what was keeping you from being curious. And so, as you mentioned, my work got picked up by Thinker's Radar, uh, Thinker's 50 Radar, excuse me. Uh, and that was because of this is the first and only assessment in the world that mm-hmm. you can take to determine the factors that hold you back from being curious and so that you can get a plan to move forward. So uh, curiosity to me is really the spark to everything that companies are, were hiring me to speak about. They would have me talk about soft skills or a motivation or innovation or engagement or all their pain points that they were uh, having. And the way I explain curiosity is, okay, let's look at it outside of the business setting. Let's say you're going to bake a cake, okay? Mm-hmm. And I'm coming back to curiosity in a minute, but I just want you to mm-hmm. think about this. You're going to bake a cake. Your end goal is cake, right? Yep. So you're going to take your ingredients. You're going to have your flour and your eggs and your oil, whatever it is. You're mixing your ingredients. You put it in the pan. You put it in the oven and you want cake, right? But if you didn't turn on the oven, you don't get cake. You get goo. You don't get you what you want. 
And in the business setting, your cake is your productivity, your financial success, right? The company's money. And if you mix together ingredients like motivation, engagement, soft skills, leadership skills, teamwork, all the things everybody's working on, and you put it in the oven, so to speak, mm-hmm. nobody's turning on the oven sometimes. And that oven, that spark is curiosity. So that's how I look at it. And as I started to write each chapter, it was to address all of these issues, all these ingredients that people hire me to talk about, because I really think you really have to start by talking about curiosity. Indeed. And this brings me to ask you, how did you decide about the parameters you used in your scale and how you validated them? You know, that was really interesting to me because uh, just looking at um, statistics, it was never my favorite thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I, I got into it this time because I wanted to figure out what were the factors. And to figure mm-hmm. out the factors, you have to learn factor analysis and all this statistical stuff. Because like we had talked about before, people sometimes create assessments that aren't necessarily valid instruments, but they're fine. Exactly. Right. So, I, but, you know, if you have a PhD, you can't create an assessment that's not valid. You, you want to have something that's reputable and, you know, that people respect. Mm-hmm. So I did, I researched thousands of people. I actually hired psychometric statisticians at the beginning and did a lot of work with people from Harvard and Pepperdine and all these people had, uh, that I talked to. And I realized that they were all creating that assessment that told me <laughs> whether people were curious or not. And I, I didn't want that because it's already been created. So I had to work on learning the factor analysis and do my own uh, research to do my own um, psychometric uh, information and analyze it myself. And what I found is after years of thousands of people taking all these different questions and different things, I found there were four factors that uh, aligned and I've published this in a in peer reviewed journal. And it's uh, it was really exciting to find out the four things that kept people back from being curious. Mm-hmm. And would you mind elaborating on the four factors? I would love to. Uh, the acronym is FATE, F-A-T-E. Mm-hmm. And the first one didn't surprise me very much. It was fear. I mean, nobody wants to look dumb, right? You yes. don't ask questions because you think you look unprepared or somebody else is going to think something bad or somebody in the past shot you down when you asked it. And so there's a lot of things that go into fear, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the assumptions was the A. And H, actually, that, that kind of is the voice in your head. And mm-hmm. that could be inspired by fear sometimes, you know, you're, I'm not going to be interested in that. Or uh, the last time I asked a question, they made me the head of that committee and didn't pay me for doing any of the work or whatever it is that you yes. tell yourself, right? Yep. And, and you go, well, I'm not going to ask any questions because of that. And so that was really an important uh, factor. And then uh, the third factor interested me because I didn't call that one really. And it was technology. And uh-huh. the technology is really the over and under utilization of it. Sometimes, I mean, you might be the greatest mathematician in the world, but if I hand you a calculator and never to give you any foundational information behind it, we'll never know what you're capable of. And uh, it all, and other people maybe just no foundation, but they're afraid to explore what you do with it once you actually have this uh, device. We can become overwhelmed by it. So there's a lot of different factors, uh, sub-factors within all of these. And then the last one was environment. And your environment is really everybody you've ever known in your life from your parents to your siblings, your friends, your teachers, your coworkers, your boss, your past boss, and social media. I mean, just anybody you come into contact with can influence you. So I, I think a lot of these can overlap. Um, mm-hmm. Like you can have your environment can be positive sometimes, but a lot of times it can be negative. A positive example, uh, Steve Wozniak um, 
his he wrote the book I was and when I talked to him it was really interesting because uh, his book uh, I was has a beginning chapter about his dad and how he would come home from work and bring all these wires and gadgets and batteries and all this stuff home to have young was play with right and he didn't just give it to him say go play in the corner mm -hmm. he would say well that you need this wire to attach this electricity and you need electricity for this reason and and he really got specific with his uh, son mm -hmm. and that gave him a love of technology and so you know you can have that positive thing but a lot of us have negative uh experiences sometimes from family i'll say oh you can only go into this business or you you know the teacher doesn't have time to teach certain mm -hmm. things to teach to the test and there's a lot of negative uh things and if you look at a lot of the top the talks like by sir ken robinson or george land or the great ted talks out there about creativity and how it declines around age five we see the same thing with curiosity it peaks and around age five it starts mm -hmm. to tank yep. <laughs> That's what I was trying to um, help with because I think you know there there are great books like Mindset by Carol Dweck and mm -hmm. you know and Pink's, Pink's books uh, about drive and and Simon Sinek's books. I mean they're all really important, but they're all not going back to the spark, that spark mm -hmm. of curiosity that begins all of it. And I think you need to combine all of these books and and all of this research to really get a full picture of what we need to be doing. You mentioned something about the curiosity. Uh, and the age of five. And it seems that as you hinted, sometimes the experience we get from parents and curiosity can bring kid trouble. The thing about the curiosity killed the cat. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it doesn't come out of nowhere. What do you think could be downsides of curiosity? Well, you know, there's the curiosity for Candy Crush to see what's at the next level. We don't want that, right? We want we want employees. I mean, that's fun for entertainment and, and that. But I'm saying in the workplace, there's a point where you have to have directed, goal-centered yes. ideas. And, I, and when I do my curiosity code index training with organizations, I work with a lot of organizations around the world to develop curiosity. And a lot of them have great cultures. Uh, I, I did some videos recently for Verizon. I did some wor uh, works with... Um, Novartis and you know big companies around the world want their employees to develop curiosity and, and have it be, you know, helpful to the company in terms of making them more motivated and innovative and engaged and all the things that we know we're losing 550 billion or whatever you know the number is this year for uh, from Gallup uh, that we see with engagement and some of these numbers. If we can get people to to recognize this value and um, move forward that that's really what we're trying to do with with my training with the work that we do but what we do when we give them the curiosity code index is they look at their personal uh, results and they kind of create this personal SWOT of mm -hmm. you know what are my weaknesses what are my threats and how am I going to overcome them and how can I make these smart goals to get to the next level uh, so that it's kind of like you would with an engagement survey where you know you're finding out why you're not really super engaged and then now you know your baseline you can create these goals to move forward before we move to the next part i'd like to ask people watching us to open a new tab and look up dr diane hamilton d-r-d-i-a-n-e-h-a-m-i-l-t-o-n.com all one word and then click on radio show to check the latest interviews she has with some of the most successful entrepreneurs, authors, thought leaders, speakers, you name it. Almost 580 or above 580 episodes, Diane? Yeah, I've got a lot of them recorded. So I'm over 600 episodes, you know, wow. that they haven't all aired. Uh, some we pre-record. We have over 1,100 guests. 
you can actually read the shows too if you go to the blog. So if you like mm -hmm. to listen or read, if you hit the tab at the top that says blog, you can do both because they transcribe the shows. And I love that. Um, but, you know, I've had such amazing guests that from all the billionaires to the Hall of Fame speakers to the best-selling authors and Time Magazine's most influentials or, you know, Thinkers 50 people. I mean, just everybody on the show is just, everybody's just more interesting than the next. And so my, my job really is learning things from people and then sharing things with other people. That's kind of what I do, whether I'm doing my show or consulting or running, you know, my business or being a dean or whatever it is that I do. And so um, the, the show has been a lot of fun and I've made some amazing contacts. I've worked on a lot of board of advisor groups, a lot of different things because of it and uh, just love it. And I saw you, I watched one of your shows. Uh, you had Phil M. Jones on, he was on my show. What a nice guy. Yeah, and terrific. He's terrific a great guy. guy. And yes, he's got that beautiful speaking voice and he does a great job with words. I remember having him on, um, but you know, everybody I've had has just been just terrific. and. I've made some lifelong connections that just, you know, having a show has been wonderful. Indeed. I, I feel the same where you get to learn a lot from people who really know what they are talking about. Yeah. So let's shift gears now to your other area of expertise, EQ, the area of EQ. Uh, congratulations on your new EQ book, The Power mm -hmm. of Perception, was released December 2020. Diane, I'll be frank with you here. There is a C of books about EQ <laughs> in the library. Yeah. I wonder what made you think about writing a new book in this area? And what is the unique angle about EQ and perception that you are adding to the leadership library? You know, that's such an interesting question. When this book is really a combination, it's, it's not just EQ, it's IQ plus EQ plus CQ, curiosity quotient plus CQ uh, cultural quotient that gives you your perception quotient. So even though I cover EQ in my curiosity book and in this book, because it's such a hot topic, the books are basically, that's a, a kind of a smaller part of the overall book. With perception, um, what I looked at as, in terms of the factors, instead of the factors that inhibited, was more the process of perception, mm -hmm. which is EPIC, is the um, acronym. So we evaluate, we predict, we interpret, and then we uh, correlate to come up with our conclusions. And it was really taking a look at the EQ aspect that you're talking about is really how do I understand myself and how do I understand others? Because if you don't have empathy for how somebody else, what their vantage point is, that you'll never have that really good, successful communication. And so while that is a big part of emotional intelligence, it's also a part of critical thinking. It's also a part of curiosity. You have to have curiosity to ask questions, right? You want to be able to build that empathy. But to do that, I need to ask you a little bit about yourself to understand where you're coming, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's a really a, a combination of things. To me, perception ties into how we can work with teams and mm -hmm. how we can work globally. And my co-author, Maya Zelihich, Dr. Maya Zelihich and I worked together at Forbes School of Business. Um, and uh, we really had uh, just a goal of helping people through this process. And she's a global speaker throughout the world and her global knowledge and then my assessment knowledge, it just was a kind of a natural combination that we came up with um, looking at another behavioral aspect. You are economics behavior expert. Mm -hmm. When you did the study to come uh, with the conclusions in your book, um, what surprised you about global leadership that you didn't think about before you wrote this book? 
Well, you know, I think a lot of people are looking at just culture in general. They're not adding some of the other aspects. I don't think a lot of people are adding the curiosity aspect or mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the emotional intelligence aspect in terms of building empathy. Um, I think that those are really important things. I had a lot of perception experts on my show. Bo Lotto was great. He's got some great TED Talks. I've had a lot of people. And when you say perception, sometimes they're thinking about, do you see the blue dress or the gold dress? Or do you see, you know, <laughs> there's a lot exactly. of that. And, and that's some of what I'm talking about because we do see things differently. But mostly what I'm talking about is how can we appreciate each other? Mm-hmm. And my value, you may not agree with my viewpoint, but... Mm-hmm. Put yourself, try to put yourself in my position and see why I have that, what my culture brought to it, what my, my gender brings to it, what my age brings to it, where I grew up, where my parents, my, you know, everything that you, you, you have to see people as a whole. And I think it's, this is a time where people are more divided than they've ever been in my mm-hmm. lifetime. And my goal was to try to break those barriers so that if you're opening up a, a business and you want to do business in China, or you want to do business in in uh, in Africa, or you know, you're you're let's say you're an African business person wanting to break into the United States, or whatever it is, that you kind of you get this sense that oh, okay, not everybody thinks exactly like how I think, and that's huge in, in how we're going to work together. And you have to have an appreciation for why people behave the way they do. Indeed, you mentioned something very interesting about the combination of curiosity and empathy. Did you get any pushback from leaders in the field, especially business-oriented leaders who will tell you, oh, I don't care about this fluff. I only care about numbers. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I talked to Daniel Goldman on my show, who was amazing to have on, you know, about different yeah. things. You know, and he really made emotional intelligence the, the standard thing to talk about in the business world. It was, you know, in 95 when his main book was mm-hmm. successful. I think of emotional intelligence kind of like curiosity. The people who need to read about it might not read about it because mm-hmm. they need because they need it, right? Exactly. So, but people like Daniel and um, people who write about curiosity and you know they're getting the word out to the people who do have higher levels of emotional intelligence and, and curiosity who are running these companies and recognize that they they can help people who work for them to embrace this. You know, they have book clubs. They have. You know, I, I, I speak, um, I just spoke for Novartis at their Curiosity Month. In September, they have the whole month dedicated. I think they have 180 people that came in this year to speak. But I, I've been doing a lot of work with Novartis and their Curiosity. And, um, you know, they, they recognize the value of Curiosity. They've done research to tie it into engagement. They were below the uh, average on engagement before they started improving Curiosity in their workers. And now they're above. And they start measuring these things. So some of these things are quantifiable, but mm-hmm. I do have a lot of um, leaders who will say, well, what, what data do you have for this and for that? And you, you can get, you know, some, some, some data has not been created, and, you know, cause it's so new of an area of research, but you know, it's kind of intuitive. A lot mm-hmm. of, it, I, I have a lot of examples of companies like that with Novartis where they've done some research, but um I, I think the companies that understand the value of culture uh, really get it. And the ones mm-hmm. when the leaders don't buy in that there's an importance to understand culture and importance of different things, that, that, you know, that it, it rolls down. And if, if they don't buy in, it's very hard to change the culture from the bottom up. So uh, I, I have seen a lot of questions from the really interesting uh, leaders who are really super successful. They really get it. 
you know, we have, I know Travis Redbury has some research showing, you know, a lot of leaders struggle more with emotional intelligence as they mm -hmm. get up to the CEO level. Mm -hmm. And some of that comes from being around people who disagree with what they're saying. And they're in smaller groups. They're not interacting with, you know, a lot of people. But if they're really open to hearing, you know, from their employees and, and they do things like Disney went to their workers and asked them, how can we make your job better? Just simple things like that. They have, they have great numbers for the, their turnover decreased dramatically, right? Making a couple different changes based on asking questions. So there is data out there. Mm -hmm. but I, I think that leaders have to recognize the value of culture in, in general and, uh, and share that and emulate it. And uh, I, I've seen a lot of it, actually, being really, uh, I'm very impressed by the people I work with. That's encouraging to hear. As you mentioned, most of the people at the C-suite level uh, will struggle with the EQ more than the IQ because they have right. proven their technical knowledge and their IQ at that level. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting thing. I was a pharmaceutical rep for 15 years. My husband's an MD. And I, I've been around a lot of doctors and you you see a lot of that EQ thing in that field because they're really bright but they miss some of the socialization aspects because they were studying books throughout the years right and so I, I think that that kind of got me interested a little bit in the whole emotional intelligence aspect of you can be the Sheldon Coopers of the world of Big Bang Theory or you can be super bright and but you might miss out and I asked Daniel Woman you know like Steve Jobs did he have it or did he you know and all the questions you would ask and and Steve Jobs is a good example because he had some levels that were bad. His empathy didn't really feel that, but he had a high desire to connect and create things for people that would solve certain problems. And he had other aspects that really he did tie into what people wanted. So mm -hmm. it, it, everybody's got a, a, a combination of levels. And it's kind of the same thing with my assessments with curiosity and perception. You, you aren't all one thing or another. Part of fear, you might have this thing and this aspect of fear, but maybe a little higher in this aspect and then a little lower because each each one's brought into sub factors. So it, it's a question of where are you strong? Where could you get stronger? And uh, that's what I work with with people. Thank you for sharing this. And people watching us now, if you are enjoying my conversation with Dr. Dan Hamilton, please subscribe to the YouTube channel comment on the video. Remember to check Diane's website where you will find her radio show and the transcript of the talks if you prefer to read them. Now, Diane, this is a question that I ask every guest on Thrive. We all had setbacks, all of us, and we all managed to move from striving to thriving. Would you mind sharing one of your setbacks and how you overcame it? You know, I have to say I've been pretty lucky. I haven't had huge setbacks, but I tell you what I found very frustrating as somebody might look at it as a, a huge challenge. I, when I was a pharmaceutical rep, I had worked for that company 15 years. And then before that 20 years, uh, it was a 20 year total because I was in another division in their agricultural chemical division. So 20 years in one company. And when you leave that and you're at the top of your game and you can answer every question and you know everything, and then you start from scratch in a brand new industry, a brand new, I, I went into banking after that, right? So it's completely different. It's such a humbling thing to mm -hmm. start all over again. And you have to recognize that you have to reinvent yourself. And actually it led to one of my books about reinventing your career because I've had to do this multiple times. But what may seem overwhelming to people, to me, I find that just kind of exhilarating and scary at the same time mm -hmm. uh, to, to to go from the top to the bottom, so to speak, you, you mm -hmm. just you begin again, 
And I think to truly thrive, you you have to, I, I like to be a sponge, I guess that's why I'm a curiosity mm-hmm. person, you know, you, you learn as much as you can. When I had Naveen Jain on my show, the billionaire behind Viome and Moon Express and all those companies, he told me, you know, he just goes into new industries to see how he can reinvent them. And he likes to go into areas where he knows nothing about and start with fresh eyes and learn everything he can about that. And I, I think that there's something really great to that, to not rely on what other people, I mean, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You can use some of the inventions and things that people have done, but just to learn all you can learn from, from a, a new venture is can be exhilarating. And sometimes you get yourself in the golden handcuffs thinking, oh, I could never make this money doing anything else. And I, I wasn't really thrilled being in pharmaceutical sales, even though I think it's a great job. It wasn't, I'm much more administrative. I love different things that that job really wasn't. Mm-hmm. And and once I, I I recognized, I kept telling myself, you know, those assumptions, oh, this is the best thing for you. You know, this is the greatest thing. Sometimes you have to tell yourself that maybe you would, it would be exciting to try something different, something new. And it's not the end of the world to go from being the smartest person to starting all over again, because it's kind of exhilarating. How did you handle your moments of doubt during this transition? You know, everybody has doubts. I I think Mm. sometimes I had my best friend, a guy named Dick Stemple, and I worked together in pharmaceutical sales. And whenever I had doubts, I would say something to him. And he would say to me, he goes, Diane, your worst day is better than my best day. He was just kidding. You know what I mean? uh, But I I think he was kidding. I think because he's a genius. And um, but I think we're hard on ourselves sometimes. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? And, and And I was raised in a super competitive family. So there was no coming in second. You had to win all the time kind of thing. And I think that we can be our own worst enemy with that. And I, I love that assumptions came up as one of the things that hold us back from being curious. Because you might tell yourself, well, if I can't win, why would I want to play? Mm-hmm. If I'm not going to be the best, then that's some kind of a failure. Mm-hmm. There's those kinds of words that people put in your head. And I think when you write it out like that, you take assessments like that and you actually face it and in black and white, you know what I mean? Because you know this kind of intuitively, but until you really think about it, you don't recognize that, you know, change is always happening. And mm-hmm. it's just, you can learn to embrace it or fear it, but I, I find it exhilarating now. But when I was younger, it was harder. And now that I recognize what's behind it, why I was afraid of it, I think you question it. What's the worst thing that could happen? All the things you worry about are going to happen. Most of it's not going to happen. Everybody worries a lot, but uh, most of the things we worry about don't happen. Since we're talking about curiosity, uh-huh. I am very curious how you manage your time. You have so many hats in <laughs> yeah. business, in academia, radio show host, writing. How many hours do you have in your day? I'm super efficient. I have to say this one thing I'm, I can multitask. They tell you not to multitask. I mm-hmm. don't do that. I'm sorry. Whoever is a multitask expert is not going to like me saying that. But if you looked at my computer, every single window is open. I mean, I could be teaching one class here and this one here and this one here. I do a lot of online things. So I can attention switch, whatever you want to call it, from thing to thing to thing very simply. Um, I tend to prioritize the things I don't like to do first and get them out of the way where a lot of people procrastinate. I, on a Myers-Briggs scale, I'm an ESTJ, so the Js can't stand to wait to do anything. They do things immediately, so part of my personality is that. But uh, I I think that um, I, I spend, I get up very early. I'm usually up before four in the morning. If before I go to four? Yes. <laughs> and if you're in New York, your head's spinning, because that's about when you guys are probably going to bed back there. But um, I, I get up very early, and I start working before six. You know, I usually um, uh, start 
maybe five in the morning sometimes. And so I do a lot of my education-based teaching and things first before I do my radio shows. And the radio shows aren't super time consuming. I don't, I've got it down now. You know, once you've learned it, you get you you pretty much get it under a, a certain um, routine. Mm-hmm. So I, I do that. And then I uh, you know, I I have I rely a lot on my Google calendar, to be honest with you. I plan everything. And I think that a lot of people don't do that. And you really need to, to keep track of your time that way, because I, I guess I just always get to the point where I feel if I'm overwhelmed, then I'll cut back. But I've never gotten to the point where I felt I was overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. But if, if I did, I, I think I would start cutting back. I think too many people, like especially in education, they'll go, well, I'll wait till Thursday to grade papers because it's not due till Friday. But if if somebody turns in papers on Monday night, I have to grade it Tuesday morning. And if I can't grade it on Tuesday morning, if I have to go beyond that, I would not teach that class because I feel at that point that I'm not doing it in time. And I think other people would just take on more and more and more and push that Tuesday to Friday. Which, mm-hmm. And if you start doing that, you've take, you have you know you have too much going on. Indeed. How about tasks like writing? Writing's a little different. That's a good question because I, I did that a little different, especially this last book since I had a co-author. You know, I um, I think that actually I've written, this is my second book of co-author because I wrote one with my daughter many years ago. Mm-hmm. But when it's easier for me to write alone uh, because if I get in a, I, I, I get into a creativity mode, like something will come to me and I might sit for two, three hours and not move. And for me, two or three hours out of me is a lot because I can really get a lot done so a lot of times it might be a weekend. It might be a time when you wouldn't be pressed to do something for something else. But uh, I, I I could go days without working on writing. But if I do start writing, I might I might sit eight hours and not move on one day on a weekend or something like that. But uh, that's the only one that I think it kind of draws me when I have that that inspiration to do it where the other ones I block in more of my time. And for me, writing is is not, um, it's just something I do more of as a hobby than like, I, oh, I have to write another book this year or oh, I have to, I, I, I just, when it inspires me, I do it. So there's no real hurry for me to get something out. But if somebody's in a rush to do it, I would recommend, count, you know, calendaring anything you had to do to meet deadlines. Oh, interesting. And how do you deal with items that just pop up out of nowhere, like a crisis in your business, uh-huh. like a meeting that's unexpected, and now the calendar is not in sync. Yeah, with- that's a good question. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, okay. I, uh, for example, yesterday I had somebody who's trying to give my um, curiosity instrument, and he needed to have special codes created, and it was like I didn't want to make him wait at all because mm-hmm. I, I mean I'm all about customer service. So he, you know, if I had. Um, if I had to be on a show or something like right now, say he, the say that happened to me right before this, and I knew I was going to be on this show, I would drop him a note saying I'm about to be on a show for the next hour. But the minute I got off the show, I will be on that. You know, and and pe- people respond very well to knowing that you're on it, that mm-hmm. instead of not that oh well maybe you'll get around to it. Mm-hmm. I, all, what I do though is I by about six o'clock at night. I don't. I do not check my messages because I need to have that downtime because I go to bed like at eight and I'm a miss excitement at night because I get up so early, right? So there's a people who know me. They know not to even call me after six o'clock at night because they know I'm calming down to go to sleep. But most people aren't contacting you in the middle of the night for things. You know, what I mean, they 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 know that. So 
uh, I I mean, if somebody contacts me, it's it's a unless it's at eight o'clock at night, they may have to wait till four in the morning for a response. But I the first thing I do is hit all my email and uh, all my messages, and and if it's something urgent, and I could, if it's something I have to cancel, something that's not so urgent to to do it, I would. Mm-hmm. Now, Diane, anything you would like to share with your audience on Thrive that you have not shared before in any other podcast? Uh, you know, I have a lot of. Um, new information you already mentioned we got the new book the power of perception but the perception power index is available now mm-hmm. and we have certification training uh, just like we did with uh, the curiosity code index so if they go to the site at drdianehamilton.com you could go up to the top menus you could drop down the perception or the curiosity whichever one you want to take if they take the training they could get five hours of sherm recertification credit so for either of the certifications on those and so that's that's new. There's some other new stuff on my site. You can take a free curiosity course at developcuriosity.com. And uh, so I, I think that probably the newest thing is the certification for the Perception Power Index. A lot of consultants like to get certified. They're tired mm-hmm. of getting disc. They're tired of Myers-Briggs. They're tired of the emotional intelligence test because they've done it so much and they've already trained people. And those are all really important assessments, but they're, they're looking for something new to be more relevant. And these assessments, are there's nothing like them. And uh, so they're all there. Mm-hmm. Congratulations, Diane. Thank you. I can speak with you for days. <laughs> Be careful what you wish for. <laughs> oh, well, I hope to have you again on Thrive and talk more about your book and your new endeavor, especially what will come out from the Perception Index. I'm sure there will be more data. It is interesting to get the data. And so I we need people to take the assessments. And the more we get on there, uh, the more we'll share. So it'll be great. Thank you so much for being on Thrive and for our audience. Until we meet next time, keep safe, keep motivated, keep resilient, and see you in the next episode of Thrive. Thank you.